What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is Stuart England, The Civil Wars, Episode 2.101, The Other House. Three episodes ago, we tracked the progress of the Second Protectorate Parliament, which opened in September 1656. Compared to the First Parliament, which was dissolved in acrimony as soon as the Constitution allowed, the Second Gathering was a smashing success. But that was a pretty low bar to clear. In reality, the session had been yet another slog. Even after Lord Protector Cromwell took the provocative action of expelling a large swath of the elected members, the remaining group remained divided and uncooperative. The men, deemed loyal enough to remain in their seats, split into rival camps. John Desbro led what became known as the Army Faction, advocating for a continuation of the administration of the nation through the major generals, primarily via a parliamentary statute making the decimation tax that paid for the soldiers a permanent source of revenue. Opposing Desbro and his allies was the civilian faction. Leading the way here was Roger Boyle, the new English soldier-slash-administrator who had worked to maintain order and stability in both Scotland and Ireland, and Edward Montague, the Cromwell loyalist who had worked as the Lord Protector's eyes and ears in Robert Blake's war fleet. These guys sought to create a new political system that would a. restore some stability and normalcy to English politics, and b. have the parliamentary seal of approval, which had never been given to the existing constitution, John Lambert's instrument of government. Boyle and Montague worked with the noted constitutional lawyers Bulstrode Whitelock and Oliver Sinjin, who also happened to be Cromwell's cousin. Together, they drafted the humble petition and advice, which Cromwell accepted in the spring of 1657, over the protests of army officers like Desbro and John Lambert. Cromwell adjourned Parliament soon after, so England could focus its attention on the war in Europe, events we covered two episodes ago. Parliament was scheduled to reconvene in January 1658. Cromwell hoped that this time he would be able to wield the kind of influence at Westminster that had so far eluded him. There was reason to be optimistic. The war had gone relatively well. Despite the predictable friction with their French allies, the Allied force had dealt a series of defeats to the Habsburgs. True, Dunkirk, the great prize, still lay in enemy hands. But English troops held the nearby port of Mardyke and were well poised to finish the job in the summer of 1658. As Cromwell knew better than anyone, Nothing won the cooperation of Parliament quite like victory in war. But the Lord Protector didn't put all his faith in popular battlefield glory. One of the reasons the humble petition and advice had appealed to him was its promise of political normalcy. Where Lambert's instrument of government had created a system of interlocking institutions that would, in theory, provide stability, the guys who drafted the new constitution relied on a more empirical method, what had worked in the past. In some sense, they wanted to restore the monarchy, with Cromwell as king. The Lord Protector had balked at that kind of literal restoration, but the crown wasn't the only relic of the past that could be revived. In the immediate term, Cromwell's primary goal was ensuring the smooth operation of the reopened Parliament. The best tool for that job was what the men at Westminster were tentatively calling the Other House, a second chamber of Parliament that could counter, or maybe just moderate, the unruly House of Commons. The Other House was not an exact replica of the House of Lords, 
For one thing, it was not populated by the titled aristocrats of the British realms. Instead, members were nominated by the Lord Protector and served for life. As you can imagine, this had the potential to totally alter the character of Parliament. Since the new House wielded an effective veto on bills coming out of the House of Commons, Cromwell would have the ability to tame Westminster, albeit indirectly. But there was more going on here than just power politics. Cromwell and the other men who had drawn up the humble petition and advice saw the other House as an ideological necessity. In effect, they were borrowing from the old model of mixed monarchy. Balancing power between a sovereign and the commons had proved too unstable. There needed to be a third party who derived their interests not from ephemeral popular acclaim or the personal power of a ruler. Theoretically, the other house would be populated by responsible men who enjoyed the security of a lifetime appointment. More practically, the other house would act as a bulwark that would be better at protecting Cromwell's red lines than the Lord Protector alone. In the previous sessions, Parliament men had more or less ignored Cromwell's demands even when he expelled large numbers of them. By filling the other house with men who shared his views on religion and the broader social order, Cromwell could establish leverage and a better bargaining position. That being said, Cromwell didn't seem to be in any hurry to set up his new political instrument. The ceremony which reinvested him with his new powers as Lord Protector took place at the end of June, 1657. But six months later, in December, he still hadn't made any appointments to the new house. Parliament was set to open in January, and everything was still up in the air. The army and civilian factions in the House of Commons were getting anxious. Civilian leaders like Boyle and Montague could reassure themselves that it was their constitutional reforms that Cromwell was implementing. But they were all too aware that the Lord Protector was playing his own game. As you recall, many in the civilian faction had hoped that Cromwell would accept the crown. In fact, the final version of the humble petition and advice had included several concessions to the Lord Protector, in hopes that he would accept a promotion to king. Some now began to worry that Cromwell had played them that he had never seriously contemplated taking the crown, and it was all just a ploy to reshape the constitution to his liking. Now that he had the power to populate this other house at will, would he really adhere to the same principles as the civilian faction? Meanwhile, the army faction had cause to feel optimistic, despite its failed opposition to the humble petition and advice. They were, after all, Cromwell's inner circle. John Lambert had been the Lord Protector's closest advisor in political affairs for years. No one knew his views on the constitution better. And John Desborough and Charles Fleetwood were literally part of the Cromwell clan, linked to the Lord Protector by marriage. The relatively successful campaigning in Europe also played into the hands of the army men. The source of the Protectorate's power was, and always had been, military strength. It wasn't unreasonable to hope that Cromwell would reaffirm that bond by rewarding his victorious soldiers with seats in the new house. But the longer Cromwell delayed his choices, the more anxious both factions became. Really, Cromwell himself was likely feeling the pressure. As John Thurlow pointed out, the stakes could not have been higher. A mistake here, Cromwell's spymaster warned, will be like that of war and marriage. It admits no repentance. The appointments were for life. Cromwell might think he was appointing trusted allies, but who knew what actions they would take once they were seated. Cromwell's decision-making process at this crucial juncture is virtually impossible to reconstruct. He doesn't appear to have confided in anyone though it seems likely that he at least consulted Thurlow. No one could beat the spymaster for detailed information on the main contenders. Thurlow saw the appointments as a dilemma as much as an opportunity. On the one hand, there were many men who were fit to serve, but were unwilling to associate themselves with such a novel, experimental institution. On the other hand, Thurlow warned, there were many who were not fit, but expected to be called upon. If these men were not included, they were likely to dismiss the other house as sour grapes and attack its legitimacy from the outside. I used that reference correctly, right? 
In the second week of December, 1657, a month before Parliament was set to reopen, Cromwell finally made his choices. In total, he appointed 60 men. This was 10 short of the maximum set by the humble petition and advice. It's likely that Cromwell was leaving himself some wiggle room to accommodate those who might be disappointed with the makeup of the new house. In fact, days later, he added two more names, Richard Hamden, son of the ship money slash war hero, and William Lenthal, a longtime speaker in the Long Parliament. The men chosen by the Lord Protector offer some insight into how he viewed the institution. As usual, Cromwell was balancing several different objectives at once. Perhaps his most obvious goal was to counterbalance the policies of the House of Commons that he disagreed with, particularly in the realm of religion. Generally speaking, the men of the other house were noteworthy in their opposition to the harsh line Parliament had taken against the Quaker James Naylor in the previous session. This was an unmistakable attempt to curb the political inclinations of the House of Commons. But Cromwell was also motivated by more abstract, ideological concerns. Both he and the humble petition and advice were explicit. This was not a revival of the House of Lords. Membership in the chamber did not bring with it an aristocratic title. Nor did noble blood guarantee a seat. But Cromwell was keen to borrow what legitimacy he could from the defunct House of Lords. In a sense, he's playing the same game with his title of Lord Protector. He was no king, but he wasn't above using the trappings of monarchy to lend his office a degree of continuity. Subtracting the many lords who had joined the Stuarts in exile, around 20 nobles who had sat in the old House of Lords were still hanging around London. Though even some of these guys were politically suspect. Some were royalists in all but name, who had just decided that living under the current regime was better than exile. Others were men who had once been loyal to Parliament, but had run afoul of the various governments since the war. For instance, a group of seven Presbyterian peers who had been impeached in 1647. By the time of the purge and the execution of the king, only five peers were regularly attending the House of Lords. And since their house was dissolved along with the monarchy soon after, aristocrats had not been great supporters of the new republican regime. Their titles were not stripped away, so long as they weren't royalists, but the political power that was their birthright was erased. In all, Cromwell invited seven nobles to join the new house. The most prominent among them were Viscount Say, who had been a radical independent voice in the House of Lords since James's day, and the Earl of Warwick, the old admiral who had been ushered into retirement at the beginning of the Commonwealth era. Both, however, refused the invitation. To accept this new house would be, in effect, recognizing that their old privileges as peers would never be restored. Though it should be noted that Warwick made sure he wasn't burning any bridges with the regime. At the same time he refused the Lord Protector's offer, Warwick's grandson and heir, Robert Rich, married Cromwell's daughter Frances at Whitehall. Almost ten years after the execution of the king, key players in English politics were still hedging their bets. Perhaps the most interesting aristocratic invitation was the one extended to Cromwell's old rival, the Earl of Manchester. Since the fall of the Presbyterian faction in 1647, Manchester had been living in a kind of forced retirement from public life. Cromwell's decision to invite him back into politics has always intrigued historians. It's possible Cromwell was swayed by his growing reliance on Manchester's cousin, Edward Montagu, the Lord Protector's most trusted ally in the Navy and co-author of the Humble Petition and Advice. It's also possible that Cromwell saw Manchester as a useful bit of continuity with the old House of Lords. Manchester had experience acting as Speaker in the old House, and might provide valuable organizational skills in getting the new institution off the ground. Certainly Manchester was unlikely to blindly support whatever radical legislation the House of Commons passed along. In the end, though, such speculation is moot. Like Say and Warwick, Manchester refused the appointment. Only two lords took up their seats, both young men of little influence, and one of them, Lord Falkenberg, Cromwell's son-in-law, through another daughter, Mary. 
If Cromwell hoped that the other house would enjoy some residual legitimacy through a continuity with the House of Lords, he was disappointed. Speaking of unexpected job offers, Cromwell made one invitation even more surprising than Manchester's. Arthur Hasselrake, the man who had done more than anyone else to wreck the parliaments of the Protectorate, was offered a lifetime seat in the new house. As you may recall, Hasselrig was leading a boycott of Parliament in protest of the Lord Protector's decision to exclude members he deemed unfit. It's possible that Cromwell hoped to remove Hasselrig from the Commons by placing him in the other house, where he would be isolated and ineffectual. In the more likely event that Hasselrig rejected the invitation, it would hopefully make it easier for the regime to delegitimize his protests. If he wanted no part of Parliament, then so be it. But enough of those who didn't serve in the other house. What about those who did? 42 of these 62 men Cromwell selected accepted the appointment. There are a few different ways you can divide them up. One is by nationality. There were four Welshmen, including Philip Jones, the notorious wheeler and dealer in the Welsh land market, three Scots, led by Archibald Johnston, the co-author of the Scottish Covenant, and an Irish caucus, dominated by Roger Boyle, the new English statesman who was fast emerging as a force in British politics. The Protectorate House of Commons had been consciously constructed as a British institution, with seats set aside for Irish and Scottish members. But in practice, the multinational character of Parliament had been muted so far. There's evidence that Cromwell deliberately set up the other house as a distinctly British enterprise. Boyle's role was especially important. Not only had he helped to draft the new constitution, but he had personal networks in both Ireland and Scotland. Boyle also shared with Cromwell a desire to rein in the more radical impulses of the Commons. A more pronounced block of Scottish, Irish, or even Welsh interests might just provide a different perspective in the other house. Another way of breaking down the composition of the other house is dynastic. Seventeen of the 42 members were in some way related to Cromwell, mostly via marriage, but Cromwell made sure to tap two of his sons as well, his eldest, 31-year-old Richard, and Henry, who had performed quite well in governing Ireland and turned 30 on the day Parliament reopened. From one perspective, this is evidence of the narrow support base for the regime. When pressed to find men he trusted, Cromwell found it difficult to move beyond those personally tied to him, not a recipe for stability. But if this was nepotism, it was of a more complicated character than simply giving jobs to close family. The men of the larger Cromwell family network didn't get invites to the other house because of who they were married to. Who they were married to was in part determined by the value they brought to state administration. By 1658, many of the most experienced and talented administrators had been brought into the Cromwell clan. Cromwell didn't see this as promoting incompetent sons-in-law, but rather tying himself to the most reliable and experienced statesman in the nation. The final and perhaps most important way to understand the other house was partisan politics. By accepting the changes to the constitution the new house represented, Cromwell had sided with the civilian faction, led by men like Roger Boyle. But the Lord Protector had no desire to alienate the army faction, which included longtime allies and in-laws like Charles Fleetwood and John Desborough. In fact, those two, like Boyle, were promoted to the new chamber. Both factions were represented in the other house. Neither had the numbers to determine the course of debate on their own. This was almost certainly a deliberate calculation on Cromwell's part. In order to get their way, both factions would have to actually show up and debate. Unlike the old House of Lords, proxies were banned. Men would have to speak and vote for themselves. In this way, Cromwell hoped that the divisions that had emerged between the army and civilian factions could be mended, or at least minimized. After all, despite their differences, both these groups were fiercely loyal to Cromwell and his regime. He couldn't afford divisions when the new session of Parliament began. This vision of the other house, acting as a site of compromise, was voiced by the chamber's speaker, Nathaniel Fiennes, son of Viscount Say. 
In his opening address to the new house, Fiennes denounced both hardline radicals and unrepentant royalists. Such extremists offered either utopias of I know not what kind, or daydreams of the return of I know not what golden age. He urged his colleagues to lead England down a middle path. Everyone cannot have what he thinks best in his judgment, Fiennes explained. Instead, they must aim for what he may think next best, which probably may be the best of all. However, while Fiennes opened the other house with his celebration of compromise, elsewhere at Westminster, the Commons returned to its usual discord. One of the primary objectives of the constitutional reforms in the Humble Petition and Advice was to restore Parliament's tarnished legitimacy. The slate was wiped clean for the 93 members who had been excluded during the first session. Cromwell, Boyle, and the others were gambling that the reforms, especially the other house, would neutralize any disorder or opposition the returning members might cause. The central importance of the other house to Cromwell's parliamentary strategy is often missed, in part because, spoiler alert, it failed, but also because of how quickly it seemed to be thrown together in the days leading up to the second session of Parliament. But in reality, the future of the regime hung on the success of the other house. Could it tame the unruly commons? Almost immediately, the grand plan began to fall apart. The core problem was simple mathematics. In carefully calibrating the population of the other house, Cromwell severely weakened the regime's position in the commons. Thirty of the government's most loyal and vocal members were promoted out of the commons. The effect was magnified by the return of the 93 excluded members. Not all of them were determined opponents of the regime, but none of them had been there for the debates on the humble petition and advice, and so they had no personal commitment to the new constitutional order. But even so, it's possible the session could have produced results, if effectively managed. Unfortunately, circumstances worked against that. Cromwell fell ill that winter. Fifty-eight years old now, the Lord Protector's health had become a more and more pressing problem in recent years. Cromwell managed to drag himself to Westminster to address the new session of Parliament, but his vigor was noticeably absent, and he provided little in the way of guidance for the coming weeks of debate. When the session began in earnest, the government didn't really have a voice in the Commons. No one took the lead in setting the terms of debate. There was little discussion of the ongoing war, the state of government finances, or the threat of royalist insurrection, all topics well-suited to gaining the attention of members and drawing the House towards urgent government policies. In a sense, the Protectorate repeated the mistakes of the old Stuart state when it used promotions to the Lords to reward loyal officials. Perhaps such politicians could further the government's interests in the other House, but their value in the Commons was hard to replace. But the government's failures of parliamentary management were even more basic than failing to shepherd debate. On the first day of the session, proceedings were violently derailed by a simple procedural matter. The other house suggested a day of prayer to guide the nation through its current challenges. On the surface, a fairly standard and innocuous motion. But when the suggestion was delivered to the House of Commons, it was reported as coming from the House of Lords. On the surface, this might seem like an oversight. The other house was a bit of an awkward construction. Perhaps the officials who handled such technical matters at Westminster fell back on traditional norms, either out of habit or simplicity. But in reality, the status of the other house was far from settled. Its relationship with the Commons would be determined by these kinds of formalities, as much as the text of the humble petition and advice. At issue was the role the other house was to play in creating legislation. For those who advocated the supremacy of the Commons, it was obvious. The other house had been created by the House of Commons, through the production of the humble petition and advice. Therefore, it was subservient to its creator, an advisory body, sure, but it was nonsensical to think that it could veto Commons legislation. But the use of the old designation House of Lords flew in the face of that interpretation. If this was a revival of the old upper house, then the two chambers were partners. 
If anything, the lords held a customary superiority over the commons. The use of the term House of Lords set off fireworks in the commons. As you would expect, Republicans and true believers in the supremacy of the commons railed against this encroachment on the people's chamber. Leading the way was Arthur Hasselrick, who had refused his appointment to the other house and taken a seat in the commons. True to his rumper roots, Hasselrick denied any and all challenge to the supremacy of the House of Commons. Hasselrick's opposition to the other house was predictable, and certainly no surprise to Cromwell or his allies. Had his been the only voice against the new institution, the day might have been salvaged. What really alarmed the Protectorate administration was the opposition coming from the more conservative wing of the Commons. Cromwell had designed the other house to appeal to traditionalists, who worried about the growing radicalism of English politics. Recreating a version of the old House of Lords was supposed to bring a degree of stability and normalcy to Westminster. Just as the office of Lord Protector provided all the benefits of monarchy without the baggage of the royal title, the other house was supposed to emulate the influence of the Lords without the taint of aristocratic privilege. But to Cromwell's surprise, constitutional traditionalists in the House of Commons were not impressed with his work. To them, the other house was a shabby imitation of the Lords, not an independent body at all, but a private club packed with the Lord Protector's lackeys. In reality, it was no such thing. By balancing the factions in the other house, Cromwell ensured that it wouldn't be a rubber stamp, easily approving his wishes. It was the worst of both worlds for the Lord Protector. The other house was not an instrument he could wield at will, but many in the Commons thought it was, and so rejected its legitimacy. Cromwell was left with two houses at Westminster, one paralyzed by gridlock, and the other convinced that it was under coordinated attack. The Commons decided to ignore the message from its fellow chamber, as it did not recognize the existence of any House of Lords. Instead, the House turned its attention to what was obviously a pressing issue. What was the current constitutional order? On the 25th of January, just five days into the session, an ailing Cromwell managed to summon up the energy for an emergency address to both Houses at the Banqueting House at Whitehall. The Lord Protector tried to distract the Parliament men away from thorny constitutional questions with an old-fashioned appeal to war and glory. Cromwell announced that in the coming campaigning season, the Anglo-French alliance would be expanded to join the existential war of religion Charles and Buckingham had promised in the 1620s. The Protectorate would join forces with Charles X of Sweden, who was, at this moment, waging an apocalyptical crusade against Catholicism in Europe. The Lord Protector informed his audience of the greatest design now on foot, in comparison with which all other designs are but low things, is whether the Christian world should be all popery or whether God hath a love to, and we ought to have a brotherly fellow feeling of, the interest of the Protestant Christians in the world. Again, there were echoes of Stuart-era parliamentary strategy. Political divisions at Westminster would hopefully evaporate in the face of a popular religious war abroad. But again, as it happened all too often to the Stuart kings, the Commons simply ignored the instructions it was given. On the 28th of January, the House officially set aside all other business until the question of the other House had been settled. One member urged his colleagues not to fall out over a petty matter like a name. We must give them some name, call them a house of men, of women, or something that have two legs. But as Cromwell had proven when he refused the title of king, labels mattered. The handful of Cromwellians in the Commons urged their colleagues to simply accept the title House of Lords as the most convenient solution in the short term. It was in keeping with the spirit of the humble petition and advice, which clearly imagined the other house as a version of the old House of Lords. Besides, the political situation was far too unstable to risk yet another rewrite of the Constitution on the fly. Had not the Lord Protector just told them that England was about to embark on the most momentous war in its history? Thomas Scott, John Thurlow's predecessor as spymaster in the old rump regime, and now a member of the Commons, shot back. 
If the drafters of the humble petition and advice had attended the house in question to be the Lord's, they should have written it into the document. Scott was followed by his rumper colleague, Arthur Hasselrig, who hoped that the commons would quake to hear that they are returning to Egypt. What had the last 15 years been about if the old order was going to be reimposed through the back door? Again, however, it was the more conservative wing of the commons that proved decisive. For traditional constitutionalists, who actually did want the return of the House of Lords, the other house was a step in the wrong direction. If they legitimized this false house by calling it the Lords, the restoration of the true Lords might never happen. In a sense, they were making the same argument that Viscount Say and the Earl of Warwick had made in turning down their appointments. Accepting this compromise would effectively kill any hope of restoring the aristocratic element of the old constitution. Just as it became apparent that the bid to rebrand the other house as the Lords had failed, a much more dangerous threat to the Protectorate appeared. Spurred on by their success, the old rumpers, led by Hasselrig and Scott, saw their best opportunity yet to reverse Cromwell's hijacking of Republican England back in 1653. Ultimately, this battle over England's constitution would be decided in the Commons, but Hasselrig and Scott methodically laid the groundwork outside Westminster. In the last days of January, they circulated a petition around London, and in particular within the ranks of the army. The document's content was, on the surface, uncontroversial. The petition laid out the four components of royal tyranny that had caused the civil war. First, that the veto power enjoyed by the crown and the lords had silenced the voice of the people. Second, that the king had imposed taxes without the consent of the people through parliament. Third, the king had exercised a monopoly on the kingdom's military resources. And finally, that Charles had arbitrarily violated the property rights of his subjects. Taken at face value, these were claims that virtually everyone this side of a royalist could agree with. But in the context of January 1658, the unspoken implication was that the current protectorate regime was exercising these same tyrannies the old king had. The petition made this all but explicit with a concluding section that called for a new constitution that would make such abuses impossible. The proposed model was simple. The people, which could only be represented by the House of Commons, needed complete control over producing laws, operating the courts, and hiring and firing all public officials. The goal was to use the petition to rally a popular movement behind a simple political program. The people ruled England, and only the House of Commons could represent the people. In a sense, it was the logical conclusion of the argument the Long Parliament had made in 1642. After garnering widespread support, the petition was scheduled to be presented to Parliament on the 4th of February. The overwhelming popular support for parliamentary supremacy it demonstrated would allow Hasselrig to guide the House of Commons towards yet another round of constitutional reform. At least, that was the plan. By this time, Cromwell and his allies recognized that the tide of Parliament was against them. On the 3rd, the day before the petition was to be presented, the other House sent another message to the Commons. This one urged the two Houses to join with the Lord Protector in eliminating an imminent plot against England being organized by Papists and Royalists in London. It was hoped that an appeal to paranoia would succeed where everything else had failed. Hasselrig urged his colleagues to see this for the pretext it was. Not only was this a trick to get them to abandon their constitutional principles, but if they gave the Lord Protector special powers to root out these enemies of the state, who's to say they wouldn't be targeted next? Ultimately, the Commons voted to declare their support for the crackdown, but they addressed their reply to the other house, not the Lords. There could be no compromise on the privileges of the Commons. That night, Cromwell planned his response. The Commons men remained defiant, and the petition campaign had become alarming. By all reports, these signatures were multiplying, and many of the names belonged to known fifth monarchists in the army, the men who had never truly reconciled themselves to the protectorate regime. 
it was possible that within the next 24 hours, the House of Commons would play host to an unholy coalition of oppositional forces, from rumpers to religious radicals to traditional constitutionalists. Cromwell had good reason to believe that he would be the target of their wrath. Certainly, his enemies were not united by religion or constitutional ideology. The only thing they shared was a sense that Cromwell was betraying the parliamentary cause, whatever that cause was these days. For Hasselrig, Cromwell's crime was placing restrictions on the commons. For the Fifth Monarchists, it was his betrayal of the godly cause. And for constitutionalists, it was the growing fear that Cromwell was manipulating England's political traditions, not in the name of stability, but to further his own power. On the morning of the 4th, Cromwell gathered his closest allies at Whitehall to inform them that the session at Westminster would be dissolved immediately. Some feared the consequences. Cromwell would be playing right into the hands of his enemies. The petition circulating around London specifically called for an end to purges and forced dissolutions. By closing down Parliament, Cromwell would be proving the case against him as a tyrant. Charles Fleetwood took the lead in trying to dissuade the Lord Protector. But Cromwell cut him short. You are a milksop, he said flatly. Likely he was thinking of Fleetwood's management of Ireland, where he had deferred to the Army Baptists on just about every issue, for fear of provoking them. That was not how Cromwell intended to run England. He hadn't gathered Fleetwood and the others to ask for their advice. He was telling them what was about to happen. Cromwell marched into Westminster, delivered one of his patented harangues, and brought the session to a close. I do dissolve this parliament, he proclaimed. Let God judge between you and me. Fleetwood's fears of insurrection proved unfounded. The parliament closed down relatively quietly. At a meeting of top officers two days later, Cromwell secured the support of the army. The only resistance came from William Packer, who you may remember as the officer arrested for religious radicalism during the Civil War, the incident that sparked the conflict between Cromwell and the Earl of Manchester. Back then, Cromwell had defended Packer. But now, Packer, an ardent Baptist, saw Cromwell's autocratic rule as a betrayal of the godly cause. Cromwell easily brushed aside this isolated opposition and dismissed Packer from the army. Reports soon came in from Scotland and Ireland that the armies and governments there stood with Cromwell. The immediate threat had been neutralized. But Cromwell was still no closer to securing parliamentary support for his regime, an ingredient he still considered absolutely indispensable. Though, despite his track record with parliaments, two for two on acrimonious dissolutions, he remained confident that fresh elections would deliver a more cooperative body. The major generals, which had been an irritant during the 1656 elections, were a forgotten memory. And to be fair, many of the men at Westminster that January had previously been excluded by the Lord Protector. It was only natural that bad blood prevailed. Most importantly, Cromwell hadn't been exaggerating when he said 1658 would see England join the Great Crusade for Europe's soul. If sound governance and constitutional reform failed to win the heart of Parliament, surely a great victory to match the triumphs of Dunbar and Worcester would. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 